Hello, I'm Marit Smeyman. Welcome to Calm, Clear and Helpful, a weekly podcast series on taking good care of yourself and others. Introducing you to a wide range of wellness professionals ready to inform and inspire. Today's topic is, is dementia a disease of the brain and not the soul? My guest is Dr. Rain Strubel, Managing Director of Geretic from Cape Town. Welcome, Rain. Thank you, Maria. Thank you for the privilege to join in the conversation. To our listeners, after our conversation, Rain will give us three tips on efficiently communicating with someone living with dementia, and then it will be fun question time. Rain, could you please tell us more about your work? Sure. So I have been working as the managing director and owner of Geratech for the past 27 years. Um, it's a company that provides services and support to older people, both living in, in long-term care homes and in the community. And our focus is on optimal quality of life. So whether that is through you know, nutrition services that we provide or housekeeping or nursing or caring uh, and a lot of training, workshops, education, my and my company's focus is on creating a life worth living for older people. That's beautifully put. Today we're considering dementia and how it affects consciousness, which is something, a thought completely new to me. Let's start with your definition of dementia. So I want to stick to the World Health Organization's definition because, you know, I think it, it really is held as the definition um, where it states that dementia is a syndrome that can be caused by a number of diseases which over time destroy nerve cells and damage the brain, typically leading to deterioration in cognitive function. Now, how we, how we define cognitive function is the ability to process thought beyond what might be expected from the usual consequences of biological aging. So there are a lot of questions about, you know, what is normal aging? While consciousness is not affected, this is, this is stated categorically in the World Health Organization's definition, while consciousness is not affected, the impairment in cognitive function is commonly accompanied and, and occasionally preceded by changes in mood, emotional control, behavior, or motivation. Now, Mariette, if we have to unpack this definition, um, it's going to take us, I think, for the rest of our lives, because mm. it's such a complex, complex statement of, of fact. And as we do more research, you know, a lot of these facts are being questioned. And that's why I'm so excited to have this conversation with you, you know, steering off into another direction. And so, well, while we can, you know, look at the biomedical uh, definition, what is consciousness? And, and the World Health Organization says uh, consciousness is not affected. What does that mean? So there's the biomedical definition 
and then all these other um, byways and sideways that take us in maybe a different direction. Yes, so Rain, the million dollar question, how would you define consciousness? <laughs> that, that, is, that is indeed um, a million dollar question. You know, I think so many people, so many opinions. Consciousness is a complex and, and a multifaceted concept um, that, that, that is, you know, the point of departure. It's complex, it's multifaceted. And it refers to our state of being aware and able to think about our own thoughts. So being aware of one's, one's thoughts, being able to think about them, but also our feelings, uh, sensations, and the surrounding environment, it involves subjective experience and self-awareness. So already, you know, we see that, that this is an incredibly complex and multifaceted concept um, of being aware of our, our self, our thoughts, our feelings, sensations, the, the environment. And it is a subjective thing, you know, it is, it is my consciousness is my consciousness and, and self-awareness. Of course, we also know that Jung and the, and the psychotherapists talk about the subconscious, that's a whole different conversation. Um, so despite its, its centrality to human existence, the nature of consciousness remains one of the most challenging and debated topics in, in philosophy, psychology, uh, neuroscience, religions, you know, spirituality. So yeah, I, 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 I'm not sure whether we can ever answer the question, you know, what is consciousness because it is so complex and multifaceted. Mm. What do we learn from scientific studies regarding dementia and consciousness? So, you know, it depends again on on which scientific studies we're going to, to explore. Because if we purely look at the biomedical uh, research, you know, it, it, is, it is very much just focused on, you know, what happens in the body. But we know that, that there is a connection between dementia and consciousness because it is about our being in the world. So studies that have explored um, how changes in the brain are associated with dementia and how it impacts consciousness and self-awareness. So dementia can affect different aspects of consciousness, um, but consciousness is always present. So, you know, it's a tricky road to say, well, which part of consciousness is it feelings, emotions, sensations, or whatever. But we know that, that consciousness is intact. So, you know, quite often people would, would assume that there is no consciousness of the fact that I am living with dementia. Well, well we know for a fact that that is not so. So it sounds contradictory. Um, I think consciousness is affected, but it's not lost. 
consciousness may be altered. And we, we often hear that people talk about an altered state of consciousness. Yes. However, consciousness is not lost. So there are neurobiological changes, there are altered states of consciousness, but ultimately what we need to know and what what is a given is that consciousness is not lost. Now changing tack a little, in your blog posts you speak about the soul. I was wondering how you view the soul. You, you go right for the jugular, don't you? Um, I mean, what is the soul? The, the concept, again, of the soul, and one then have to ask oneself, is the soul consciousness? Is consciousness the soul? Um, the concept of soul is so deeply rooted in, in philosophical, religious Uh, cultural traditions. And while I think there is a golden thread of soul or the the concept of soul going through every religion and every culture, um, it is is expressed differently in in Christianity, for instance, in religious perspectives, um, in, in philosophical perspectives, you know, Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, in the Eastern philosophies of, of Hinduism, of Buddhism. Um, so what is soul? Uh, for me, soul is the essence of life. That, you know, in, the, in Christianity, which we, we refer to as created to the image of God, um, the I am, it is, it is that absolute essence that that is in everything. You know, I, I don't believe that it's only us humans that have a soul. I believe animals have a soul. I believe plants and trees. You know, there is the, that, that life-giving force to me um, is soul. It's often considered an immortal, eternal essence that represents the core of our being. And, and, you know, we have to then ask ourselves, well, what happens to this soul, or this core or this essence after we die? Well, again, there's a whole, a whole nother podcast to mm. be had around the soul. But yeah, it is to me, it is the essence of, of I am. And today we're going to look at dementia and the essence of I am. So just for those listeners who think this is sounding very uh, abstract, it is going to get practical, not so. (laughs) Absolutely. I think it's important, though, that we we dive deep um, and then come up for air, Mm. because I think we are challenged in our society with shallow thinking. So, you know, the listeners must bear with us why we go deep and then we will surface again. But I think it is really important that we ask, you know, the five whys, you know, keep on asking why, 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 Mm. until we get to a point where we can say to ourselves, aha, okay, now it makes sense within a much broader context. Rain, I've heard you mention that the loved ones of someone living with dementia may say, 
We don't go to see our mother because she's not our mother anymore. She's not the person we knew. Well, that's, you know, that's a very good follow-up from our deep dive. If we accept that consciousness is not affected by dementia, then we have to say one plus one makes two. In other words, my mother knows that I am her child, regardless of her dementia or her cognitive impairment. She knows. She might find it difficult to get to my name. She might find it difficult to, you know, get to my wife or my children's names. But in this definition, our point of departure is consciousness is not affected. It is there. So even though your mother or parent might not be able to say, hello, Mariette, she knows. And if we go from that point of departure, we have a completely different way of being in the world with and for people living with cognitive impairment. And that is, that is why I think the deep philosophical dive and the religious dive and the cultural dive is so important that we say that's our point of departure. We know that the person living with dementia knows they might find it difficult to express things in the way that we understand them, but they know. And you've just said they may find it difficult to express this in a way that we understand. My next question is about communication. When people with dementia don't succeed in communicating with others, if they can't do that successfully, what could this lead to in the long term? Well, I think firstly, you know, if you're in a different country and you don't speak the language, I mean, think of countries like Greece or Thailand, or I mean, I've visited Iceland a few times. Icelandic is one of the most complex and difficult languages ever. Uh, one feels completely lost. And I think that happens when the person with dementia, even though they, they know, consciousness is there, they know, but they can't make themselves understood. It is very frustrating, both for them and for the people that they try and communicate to. And we are constantly trying to drag them into our world where we speak Icelandic and they speak Thai, if, if that analogy mm. makes sense. Um, and they're not going to learn to speak Icelandic. We have to learn to speak Thai. So, you know, it's a, it's a very, very interesting disconnect that then happens uh, when people can no longer communicate verbally in a way that we understand. In other words, I'm not saying that they cannot communicate or their communication is wrong or garbled. Um, their communication makes perfect sense to them. The problem lies with us, our inability to understand them. And we have to find ways to go into their world of understanding. And there are many ways, and we'll talk about that, of how to do that. Mm -hmm. You did say in one of your blogs that 
when a person living with dementia don't succeed in communicating successfully with others, then they may withdraw inwardly because they feel they cannot reach others. And then you said this places a responsibility on the shoulders of other people. You've just said that we should learn to understand Thai. What mm. does this responsibility entail? So just, I want to start with that withdrawing inward. Um, very often people living with, with cognitive impairment can become deeply depressed. Um, they switch off. They simply, you know, give up. And that is not as a result of the cognitive impairment or the, or the dementia. It is as a result of frustration, of desperately trying to be seen, to be heard. Um, and they will just give up. They will withdraw inward more and more. So we are then in a very precarious relational situation in that, you know, I often see people try and cajole people living with dementia out of that state of inwardly withdrawing. They would, you know, play music and dance and perform and, you know, do everything in their power to get the person to come out of that place. Yeah, I think there's a place for that, but I think what is more important is for us to just be with that person, not try to, to entertain them out of their place of withdrawal, but rather go in there with them uh, to their place of isolation and simply be. You know, we have an obsession in, in this world with doing. I think we can focus a lot more in being, in, in being present, in just being in kindness with a person, affording them our presence and making them understand that their presence is important to us more than their participating in a sing-along or, you know, colouring in. Yeah, affording them our presence. That is such a striking phrase. And then helping them see that their presence is important. Yes, that they're not a lesser person or they're not a, they're not a patient. Um, they're not a problem to be solved. You know, the work of Professor Andres Barth tells us that the biggest, the greatest gift that you can give any human being you know, so much more so a person living with cognitive impairment. But the greatest gift that you could give any human being is to afford them your presence. I was going to ask you about Prof. Bart's theory of presence. Could you introduce us to this theory? Yeah, fa um, Father, he, he, is a, <laughs> he is a theologian. Uh, he has a PhD in theology and, and one in philosophy, Dutch professor. He has a seat at the Northwest University at the moment, um, a wise, a wise soul. And he's considered to be the father of the theory of presence. But, you know, there's a lot of writing around that. And, and I think the best summary for me is that uh, presence is an interpersonal process 
it's something that happens in between us um, that is characterized by sensitivity, holism. I mean, I, I can carry on for days about the sacredness of the human spirit, the soul, or the sacredness of consciousness. So, so presence is this process that happens between us as human beings, um, characterized by, by sensitivity, by holism, by intimacy. Something that I work a lot with is vulnerability um, and then an adaptation to every unique situation. So it is bringing all of me into the space where there is all of you, uh, this interpersonal process. We know that it that it in that process it enhances mental well-being for for everyone involved in the process. So it's a fascinating interrelational reciprocal process um, and will will enhance uh, well-being for everyone involved in the process. So this is not a one-way street. This is not me you know bringing something to you that I am in a position of power over your, disposition of dementia. Uh, we are we are equals in this relation and it it affects me as much as it affects you. It is it is reciprocal, it is bi-directional. And what is so fascinating is is presence begets presence. It's something that that grows and flows. Um, it's not just in the moment, that moment grows, it flows. It, it's a beautiful, beautiful, energetic process that happens. And, and you know, Maria, you, you, you warned the listeners about our deep dive. I think that's why the deep dive is so important, because if we make ourselves vulnerable and we can really center ourselves and be present, there is a, an incredible spiritual process that emanates from that. I'm thinking now that you said that action in this relationship isn't that important. And I'm thinking that that wordlessness might be part of it, not so? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Because consciousness, the soul the spirit go way beyond our need to articulate in words. And, you know, just a little bit of unasked for personal information. Uh, when I turned 50, I went to uh, walk the Camino in Portugal for no other reason that I just wanted time out. I didn't think of it as a spiritual journey or anything else. Um, but when I came back in solidarity with my then 18-year-old godchild, who went out and had a tattoo done without her parents' permission, I <laughs> had my first tattoo done, you know, the, the delinquent um, old teenager. <laughs> I was never allowed to do that when I was an actual teenager. And my first tattoo on my calf is the tree of life within it, the words, 
be still and know that I am God. And a lot of my friends were shocked and horrified and said, you know, have you now become religious? Um, I'm not religious, but the essence of consciousness and the soul lies for me in the silence. Hmm. Rain, I have a quote here uh, of Professor Bartz, which says, presence is about a specific way of caring and indeed caring in a relational way, starting to know the person. Now, that in itself already is a deep dive, isn't it? Starting to know the person, because you would think if you sit with your mother, perhaps, who is living with cognitive impairment, that you know her already. Would you say there is an, a new kind of knowing that emerges from this? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. You know how often I've heard, especially daughters, interestingly enough, saying to me, you know, my mother and I never had a good relationship. In fact, you know, as I grow older, I didn't actually like my mother. And then she was diagnosed with dementia. And we got to know a side of her which was never shown before. So, yes, if we sit in silence and we afford people our presence, we will get to know other sides, other aspects, um, other depths of dimensions of their being that we didn't know before that could bring us a lot closer to each other. The opposite also happens that people, uh, you know, once the filters are gone, can become quite harsh in their unfiltered communication. But yeah, we, we, we will get to know so much more and so much deeper uh, through being present with that person. I want to go back to your personal experience once again, because I read that you had experienced this presence in caring for your grandfather when you were much younger. Could you tell us that story? <laughs> yeah, Mariette. So my grandparents, uh, my grandfather was a forester in the Neisner Forest. And when they became older, they moved um, to Heidelberg, where I grew up in the Cape, and lived in a little apartment just, you know, about, I think, 100 meters from our house. And I was always very, very close to my grandfather. And um, as he grew older, he became more and more confused, I would say. In those days, we didn't have diagnoses of dementia or Alzheimer's. You know, everyone. my grandmother just said, my grandfather was Kent's. You know, that was the mm. word we knew, coming from the word you know, being more like a child. Mm. He was the most gentle, gentle soul, never, you know, used an angry word, but became more and more confused and eventually needed a lot of help with the basic activities of daily living. My grandmother, you know, we, we didn't have all the patients in the world, but an incredible sense of humor. We realized at one point needed some help. So beautiful neighbor across the road, Sarah uh, came to help every now and then with my grandfather. And one morning I was there, 
um, grandmother in the kitchen, as always, cooking up a storm. And Sarah was helping my grandfather to get dressed uh, to start the day. And, and Sarah came to my grandmother and said, Tani Betty, Wemus is refusing to come out of the bedroom. Now, I mean, my grandfather, being the gentle soul, would never. I thought, what, what was going on here? So I won't tell you what my grandmother said, but I went into the bedroom to see what, what's going on here. And spontaneously, without thinking about it, I started rolling up his sleeves because by that time, I think I was all of maybe 16 or 17 years old. My grandfather was about 83, but I have always known my grandfather all my life as wearing you know, a button-up shirt, what we called a kerkemp. Mm. And I have always, always known him with the sleeves rolled up to above the elbow. And I, I, I thought nothing of just helping him rolling up his sleeves. And the minute I rolled up his sleeves, he came with me walking out of the bedroom. And I realized in that moment, my grandfather's consciousness around what we call the publicly presented self. Mm. That aspect of consciousness of this is how I show up in the world. Now, I can guarantee you that he did not think you know, in a sort of a, a cognitive, rational way. But he knew that something is not right and I cannot go out of my bedroom. I didn't make the, the connection that this is the reason why he's not going out of the bedroom. I, I made a, a, a spontaneous sort of almost subconscious action of rolling up his sleeves because his sleeves are always rolled up. Mm. And only when I had rolled up his sleeves did, did I realize, oh my goodness, that is the reason why he would not go out of the room. So we often attribute behavior to the dementia. He's being difficult. He is aggressive. He is, you know, wandering. Whereas, no, he was communicating something, albeit non-verbally, to say that I do not feel comfortable going out of my bedroom if I am not properly dressed. And you knew him, which made I, that easier. Yeah. I knew him intimately. I loved him deeply. Um, but yeah, as I say, Maria, it wasn't even a conscious thing for me. I just noticed something that isn't right, rectified it, and in rectifying it, you know, his behavior changed. So, yeah, it was a deep knowing, a deep knowing of each other that happened on a non-cognitive level, let's put it. It happened, on a, in my opinion, on a consciousness level without even it being filtered through the rationality of our communication. Yes. Now we're talking about what Professor Bart calls caring in a relational way. And you could do that because you had this intimate relationship with him. The question I want to ask is, 
caring for someone in this way in a formal care setting, that is difficult, isn't it? Mariette, it's, it's, it's difficult full stop because, and again, I want to take you back to your comment about the deep dive. Mm. Um, we live in a world where we are so scared of diving deep. We are scared of being silent. We are scared of introspection and self-observation. So we create categories and, and systems and, you know, so-called care models that actually take the care out of the relationships. So, yes, it is difficult. It's difficult anywhere, more difficult in so-called institutional settings. But all the more reason why I think these conversations are so important, because I know that it is possible I have done work in, in care homes across the world and I have seen it is possible. And it is even, it is so possible in care homes in South Africa. You know, whenever I speak at international conferences and I've just recently been to one in Bangkok, I talk about care and, and what we're talking about today. And I always start with saying, we have the best caregivers in the world in South Africa. I state that categorically and I, I can substantiate it by saying that the caregivers that we have in South Africa are, I think, 95, 98% of them are people from so-called colored or, or African black communities. Now, they inherited through the history an ability to be deeply sensitive to social interactions because of apartheid. You know, people had to navigate things like, if I walk past there, is that dog going to jump over the fence and bite me? Because we know from history um, that that happened. You know, can I go in here or is it the whites only place? And, and even though many, many, many years after apartheid, this still happens. So there is a sensitivity, a sixth and a seventh sense with so-called colored and black people that in the right circumstances make them the most sensitive caregivers for people uh, living with cognitive impairment or autism or, you know, physical disabilities or whatever the case may be. So if we create an environment in which relationships are supported, we see the magic happens, which, which I call the intuitive art of caregiving. This is not something that you can teach. But you can create an environment in which people feel confident to engage in a relational manner that brings out the sixth and seventh sense of deep, deep presence and caring. Could you give us some pointers, Rain, on how one creates this space? So, yeah, in the work that I do, you know, we, we created a, a workshop called the Who Am I Workshop. 
It's a very simple process that we follow of saying to caregivers, you know, you are not just a caregiver. You are most probably a mother, a grandmother, a wife, a person who likes whatever, cooking or gardening or art or painting or running or whatever, music um, often in our cultures. So we create an environment in which we invite people to bring that part of themselves into the workplace. And through a very um, experiential workshop method, we engage them in creating, you know, a, a collage, a poster of who am I? Um, and we, we encourage them to take that poster home and then bring it back to work to really showcase who they are. And then we do the same with, with residents, that we encourage the staff to get to know the who am I of the resident. You know, it's not just the hip in room four. It is a person with a social history, a psychological profile, a vocational, a spiritual, intellectual. And we, we use that as the basis and the point of departure of creating support programs. Yeah, that sounds like there's a lot of personal growth involved when someone takes part in that workshop. Absolutely. Mariette, I think... This is the point of departure, is personal growth. You know, one of the philosophies I work with, the Eden Alternative philosophy, says that human life should never be separated from human growth. I so firmly believe that we are, we are on this planet to grow, to evolve, to make this world a better place. So we encourage people in the care relationship to make themselves vulnerable uh, in a supportive environment. We give them the knowledge, the information, the tools, the resources, the training. Uh, and ultimately, yes, it is about embarking on a journey of growth for both the caregiver and the care recipient. I believe that people living with cognitive impairment are also growing um, maybe in a different direction and maybe, you know, like a, like a wild shoot of a, a plant, but there should and must always be growth. So, yes, creating an environment for growth. And if that growth is synergized through the experience of the caregiver and the care recipient, we see the most beautiful, beautiful moments of articulation uh, in deep presence and knowing. Just a quick explanation of what I do. I'm a content entrepreneur creating podcasts and articles for my own platform and for various magazines and digital platforms. My website contains a growing collection of content on emotional and physical health, 
parenting, love relationships and the life challenges and stages we all face. Each episode or article showcases a therapist, coach or other wellness professional so you can get to know them and easily find an expert who resonates with you, should you need one. I've interviewed more than 100 well-being providers from different countries. After all, online therapy and coaching means we can connect across continents. If you enjoy getting a glimpse of the person behind the professional, click on Up Close and Personal on my website for articles on many of the experts I've featured. And if you're a wellness professional interested in being my podcast guest or being featured in an article on my platform or perhaps in a South African magazine, take a look at services on my website and send me an email. Now, back to my guest. Rain, if someone is listening and they are perhaps caring for a person living with a cognitive impairment at home or they often visit this person, how could they, how could they learn to become more present? Sure. I would like to say let's go back to to that profound instruction of be still. You know, it is so difficult. We all know, you know, Mariette, I, I, I'm sure you've visited someone in hospital and, you know, there's an hour visiting hour. Within five minutes, you think, oh my goodness, this is going to be the longest hour mm. of my life because we're going to run out of conversation or, you know, you just pray that someone else would visit as well, that you could at least have a conversation, mm. you know, that it's not just you, you feel trapped. And I think that's often the case when caring for a person living with dementia who has a different way of expressing themselves, um, that we feel trapped and we then feel that we have to do something. So... I find it very, very helpful to actually say to the person, I am just here with you. I am just here. We don't have to do anything. I would, if I know the person very well, say, let's go for a walk in the garden. I know you love the garden. But try, and it is hard, try to just be with that person. I believe in physical touch, you know, holding the person's hand, putting your hand on their shoulder. Often, if it's a, a mother-daughter relationship, you know, brushing someone's hair, you can rub their hands with, with oil, essential oil or something. But in just being, you don't have to, you know, go and play a game or have a sort of rational conversation. Go with that person to where they want to be. Uh, and if they want to sleep, it's also okay to just be there because they will know that you are there. So there's no recipe. There's no easy way. I think for me it is simply be still and be with that person in whichever they, way they would want to be with you. I do find that people 
if we afford them our presence, their communication is easier. And sometimes they will tell you to go away. And that's fine. You're dismissed. Go. Mm. Thank you, Rain. I have a request. I'd like you to read us part of a blog you wrote after meeting an individual living with dementia in a care home. And it was someone, in fact, that you had never met. Would you please read that section? Interesting, Mariette. Yes, um, this actually happened in Iceland. And the person, I've never met the person, and you know, my Icelandic is non-existent. Uh, she was no longer verbally communicating, um, and this this is what I what I wrote. Without words, we communicate. I am sure she notices that my eyes are welling up. Who is this person? Now forgotten. Someone's mother, grandmother, wife. In that moment. Our worlds collide. I feel and see her connecting on the deepest soul level. We recognize each other, even though we have never met. I know you. That is being present. Thank you, Rain. And you know, Mariette, what what was interesting about that meeting was I hate being taken into, you know, a a place for people living with dementia. It's not a zoo. It's not a place to show off. Um, it's per- people's very intimate and vulnerable personal space. But it was one of those things where, you know, they were so happy to have visitors from South Africa. And we went there and, you know, I couldn't say, no, I'm not going in there. There was a whole room full of people living with cognitive impairment. But this particular lady, um, you know, I thought, okay, I I must go to one person. I can't stand in the middle like a clown waving at everyone. Mm. And and I walked over to her um, and our connection was around a ring. I have a very big silver ring with with some rubies on the side it's quite visible um and she was wearing a ring as well a a very nice ring and that became our point of connection where i reached out asked her you know can i can i look at your ring and she showed me her ring i showed her my ring It, it didn't need language it was this object that started the connection and then there was this this beautiful interaction without words thank you rain could you tell listeners where they can learn more about your work you know i have a i have a few platforms one is a series of little video clips called let's talk dementia so it's just www. Let's talk dementia, all one word, no apostrophe s. Co. Za. I write a blog which is called Minds Matter, which is again just www. Minds Matter. Co. Za. And then I also have a YouTube channel under my Geratech name. So if you go onto YouTube. And you look at Geratech, G-E-R-A-T-E-C, 
you will find many little video clips that have been put together over a few years talking about dementia. And I'm also a death doula. Um, So there's a lot of work around um, death on that as well. Um, But yeah, those are the three platforms. Let's Talk Dementia, Minds Matter, and Geratech. Thank you, Rain. And I'm going to attach those three links to the podcast. Wonderful. Thanks, Mariette. And how interesting that you're also a death doula. You're only the second one I've ever met. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, let's do let's do a podcast on death, on mortality. Mm. Mm. We're all going to die, you know. We are. <laughs> we don't like to think about it. <laughs> well, we this are. is this is part of my deep dive. Mm. I I am, um, you know, death teaches us about living. Mm. So we've got to go there. Yes. But before we go there, please, Rain, your three tips on efficiently communicating with someone living with dementia. So I think the most important thing for me is to make eye contact, make real deep eye contact and and be on eye level. You know, we so often stand over people, talk literally and figuratively speaking, down at them. So make eye contact, be on eye level, and don't ask. I, I so often see that people ask, and I, you know, for, for good intention, do you remember? Never put people living with dementia on the spot by saying, do you remember when we did this? Or do you remember when this photograph was taken? Or do you remember when we got married? Or do you remember when my child was born? Um, it's a natural thing which we all do, which I think would be great if we can cut that out of the, you know, it becomes a bit of an interrogation. We want to test the person's memory. Well, we know that that part of the brain is affected. What we also know is that the part of the brain that that affects emotions are not affected. So rather go show the photograph and say, I will never forget the day we got married. You looked so beautiful. It was a great day with such fun. Here's the bridesmaid or whatever. So take the person there. Don't test their memory of the occasion. Take them to the emotion of the occasion. Look how you are smiling. Look how beautiful you look in that dress. And then the third one, of course, which starts with the first one of making eye contact, is be still and be present. Thank you, Rain. Now, on another note, may I ask you your fun question? Please do. <laughs> now, one of your blog pics, Rain, shows you with a full-bodied beard. My question is, imagine that for an hour or two, you could have a beard colored like the fur or the skin of any animal, just for fun. Which animal would your beard resemble? I must tell you, I miss my beard terribly. Um, And I I shaved it off because I lost a bet. Oh. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> and and in the process raised 150,000 rand for charity, but I miss it every day. Well, well done so, on that. <laughs> you know what it would be is is the fur of my cat. I have an alley cat, um, a feisty little monster, and I just absolutely love her calico fur. And mm-hmm. I think I think that would look so beautiful to have a soft, furry calico <laughs> beard. <laughs> thank you, Rain. And thank you for offering us a deep dive and so many insights into this topic. You know, I had an aunt who lived with cognitive impairment and for many years I went to visit her and if only I had known about this principle of being still, it, it would have made such a difference. It's so interesting you should say that, Mariette. It's, it's a standard comment that I get, absolutely standard. And, uh, and I want to say, first of all, well, at least you visited, okay? That's, that's all that counts. But, yeah, we can learn, and not just in visiting someone living with dementia. We can learn in our own relationships mm. with our partners, with, with everyone. You know, it's not just for people living with dementia to be still and be present. Thank you. And to our listeners, it was good of you to join us. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with someone you care about. Go to my website, www.marietsneeman.co.za, for this episode's podcast notes and for free articles and podcast episodes on how to live a happier life and have more fulfilling relationships. To follow me on Facebook, just search for Mariette Sneeman, Journalist. Calm, Clear and Helpful is compiled, hosted and edited by me with original music by Mart-Marie Sneeman. Catch you next Tuesday at 9.00.